It's the 29th of August, 2015, and this is episode 242. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. This is Matthew Zipkin, and today on the show, we're joined by Rusty Russell from Blockstream. He's an engineer over there working on the Lightning Network. How are you doing today, Rusty? Good, good. How are you going, Matt? I'm going great, thanks. So your main job at Blockstream is to develop the Lightning Network, which we've all heard a lot about in the Bitcoin space recently. Why don't you just give us a short explanation of what the Lightning Network is? Why does Bitcoin need one? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Yeah, I joined Blockstream and they said, hey, you've been you know, writing some stuff about this Lightning Network thing everyone's talking about. Why don't you, you know, write a prototype? So that's what I started doing. Uh, and that's what we're working on at the moment. Now, to step back a bit, what is the Lightning Network? So there was a paper called the Bitcoin Lightning Network released by Thaddeus Dreiger and Joseph Poon, which described a mechanism to have a caching layer on top of Bitcoin. So you know how you first heard about Bitcoin and people said, hey, you know, you can send five cents around the world instantly. And you thought, wow, that's awesome. And then you kind of discovered, you know, well, actually, there's a few catches to that. You know, there, you know, it's, it's got to get in a block to be really confirmed. And, you know, there's the kind of like this 10 minute delay and, oh, five cents, probably not a great idea because, you know, there's going to be a small fee involved. Lightning basically gives that back to Bitcoin. What it is, is a fairly old idea that's been in the Bitcoin space of this idea of setting up a channel. So you establish some transactions on the blockchain between you and someone else, and then you kind of send updates to that transaction. And you can do that multiple times without bothering to put every single transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain and then settle up at the end. So the Lightning Network kind of takes us a step further and not only allows you to do arbitrary bidirectional channels so that you can pay each other you know, various amounts, but it's a network so that you can send something through to me that I route through to someone else or route through to someone else in a trustless way so that you don't have to trust me with your funds. I'll only get paid when it gets to the other end. Between these two ideas of this generalized channel and this whole network idea, you effectively end up with this caching layer for Bitcoin. So you can send funds through the network and the worst thing that can happen is, you know, somebody vanishes and then you basically dump everything onto the Bitcoin blockchain and settle like normal. Right. So the idea is that using the actual blockchain is expensive. It takes up space. It costs miners fees. It takes 10 minutes to confirm a transaction. And so we want to use the blockchain as little as possible and still find a way to use Bitcoin in a trustless way, you know, that we could say Satoshi promised. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think Bitcoin's going to be particularly expensive, but that delay can be a killer for a lot of places, right? And the other thing is that, and what the part that excites me is there's a certain size at which it doesn't make sense to broadcast a transaction to the entire world. You know, we're talking sub-cent kind of transactions. That's never really going to work on a a fee-supported broadcast network like the Bitcoin network. So the fact that it's instant in the case where everything works well, which should be the norm, and the fact that it could be incredibly low fees, both open exciting new opportunities for Bitcoin. It does seem a little counterintuitive that every node on the network will have to verify every single action of every other node if we want full global scalability. So I think that's a good setup on what the network is. I'm curious, you mentioned a little bit about the Poon white paper about payment channels. Can you tell us a little bit of the story, like starting with them up to your interests and then up to where Blockstream hired you and what your task is and what your work is now? What's the story of the Lightning Network now? 
they, they released some paper. Poon was the main author. Thaddeus kind of, you know, said that, that Poon basically bounced ideas off him and, and helped form the, the final paper. And this paper was just released like February of this year, right? We're still kind of talking news here. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is February of this year. Uh, that paper came out. Uh, they didn't have an implementation, but just Poon kind of come up with this concept of how we could join these things together to form the Lightning Network. For me, uh, the paper was, was, was kind of hard to parse. Uh, so it had a lot of pieces to it. And it was kind of going around. People said, well, it sounds really exciting, but we're not sure if it's real, right? There might be some horrible flaw in it. <clears throat> and I asked, you know, a few people, hey, you know, have, so can you break it down for me? And nobody really could. So I thought, okay, well, I'll sit down and try to really wade my way through it. And what came out of that was a series of blog posts trying to break it down into sort of the pieces that they'd put together to form this network. So those series of four blog posts on the, the Lightning Network. And halfway through that, as I started to really understand how this worked, basically, in my opinion, it's the second most exciting paper in the Bitcoin space I've ever read, and, and Satoshi's would be the first. So it really was a landmark for me and incredibly eye-opening. I, I was really excited about this. Now, I was already talking to Blockstream because they had released their sidechains paper, which, of course, had just been bumped from second most exciting paper now to third most exciting paper for me. And so I'd been talking to them, you know, the, the sidechains idea, which I thought was really exciting. Um, and I thought, you know, they have a great team. It'd be fantastic to go work with those guys. I mean, that'd be awesome. You know, if you can work in the Bitcoin space, working with, you know, Gregory Maxwell and people would be just fantastic. So when I crossed there and we were talking, they went, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, instead of working with us, what we want you to do is, you know, go off and do something with Lightning because, you know, you know a lot about that now. So <laughs> a little bit of a bait and switch. So I joined them and, and then didn't work with them. Uh, and I'm off on my own working with Lightning at the moment. So that's kind of how we got here. So what is Blockstream's revenue model as far as Lightning Network? What do they intend to get from their investment on you developing this system? That's a really good question. And you know, I asked the same thing when I went across to Blockstream. So you know, how, how are you guys going to make money off all this, this technology, this great core technology that you're doing? And the, really, the idea is that somebody has to build it. We have to make sure it's built properly. And if we're one of the leading experts in the room, there is always going to be a way to make revenue. Look at, for the example, the Red Hat model. Establishing that, that you can do these great things will lead to some kind of revenue. Now, that's completely vague for me, but that is basically the idea. And also, you've got to put things in perspective. You know, I'm just one employee, so that's the cost of their investment in Lightning at the moment is you know, just me. And obviously, when you've got a project that's this exciting, it's really hard to stay on the sidelines especially for a company like Blockstream, which is so engineer-focused and driven by, you know, by people who are hugely enthusiastic about Bitcoin and the technology, it was almost like they couldn't not do it. So that was how we ended up. So we, they really turned around and told their investors, it's, if you build it, they will come. There's no idea right now, this is how we're going to make money. But they know that once it's built, there'll be a way. Well, I mean, I didn't talk with any investors. I'm not that far up the food chain. But there was, you know, it was always like, you know, we're still in that kind of exploratory phase of Bitcoin. And there's very much that feeling within Blockstream that, you know, we are still in the early days of what we can do with this technology. And trying now to go, hey, this is the obvious thing to do is not the kind of company we are. We're an engineering company and there's a lot of really cool core things that need work. And that's what's that's what attracted me to Blockstream. And, you know, it's certainly something that all the engineers feel strongly about. Okay, so you're developing this lighting network. So now I am really interested in talking to you about the actual technology. And I've read your four blog posts. I've read your paper and the original Dryapoon paper. And it gets really, really complicated, especially towards the end when it's kind of full scale. So what I thought we'd do is maybe just talk about kind of the building blocks that make it all possible. And it seems like there's three basic stages to this. You've got the one-way payment channel, which we've already seen you know, with Streamium and things like that. 
And then there's the two-way channel where revocability is introduced. And then you have the third-party channel where A pays B, pays C, pays D, pays C, pays B, pays A. And that's where you start to get these really amazing diagrams with 17 transactions and arrows pointing all over the place. So let's go through the technology, just like the basic building blocks. Let's just talk about how a basic one-way payment channel operates, where let's say I go to the cafe on my corner every single day and I buy a coffee from them. And instead of creating a Bitcoin transaction every day, I can open a payment channel and do off-chain transactions instead. So how, how does that work? Yeah, so this was the state of play, the best technology we had uh, before the Lightning Paper came out. So basically, you establish a two of two signature on the Bitcoin blockchain, like a, what we're now calling an anchor transaction for this channel. So you'd open the channel by creating this thing that says, the coffee shop and I, between the two of us, if we both sign, we can spend this money, right? You have the first one of those, which is signed by both of you, that basically sends all the money back to you. So you've got one that says, hey, we can both sign. And then you've got this transaction in your pocket that they give you the signature for. It says, give all the money back to me. Okay, now you want to pay them, you know, two bucks. So instead of paying all 50 bucks back to me, now we create a new transaction that pays 48 bucks to me and two bucks to them, right? And I send my signature on that to them, okay? And we keep doing that. I buy more coffee, two bucks a time. And eventually, you know, I've sent them signatures for transactions for all these different values. At some point, they actually want to get their money back, so they publish the last of those transactions. So they take the signature that I provided on the, say, the one that sends 40 bucks back to me and 10 bucks to them, and they publish that on the Bitcoin blockchain. So instead of publishing five transactions, they've only had to publish two, right? The original, original one and then the final one. Now, the problem with that is that they can't pay me money using that mechanism. Right? I can send them more money, but you can't reverse the channel very easily unless you know, basically you need to do another establishment phase to get the money back. So those channels are very much one way. Yeah, and so I just wanted to clarify a couple of details. So the thing that makes this trustless up to this point is that first refund transaction actually has a lock time. So you can't actually get your money back until, let's say, 30 days have passed. And that's if the cafe catches fire or the owner disappears or something horrible happens. I can still close the channel myself because we've both signed a refund transaction and I can get my original deposit back. Exactly. So your you know your worst case there is they can hold your money for 30 days, right? So they can delay things. And the worst case for them is that they don't put it, their their transaction on the blockchain in time and you get all your money back because they forgot or whatever, right? But assuming you know you've got machines that remember this for you and software, et cetera, it's a reasonably robust system. Right. So that, that's your basic single direction channel. Right. And the reason that it's single direction is because every transaction that I sign increases the value I send to you. And those are all valid transactions. So if we wanted to decrease the amount I send you, you still have a valid transaction with greater payment to yourself. So you would really not have an incentive. That's right. You know, if, if you're talking you paying me, I would just use the one that pays me the most money, not just the latest one. Right. That's fine if those two things are the same because you're always paying me more money. As soon as I'm trying to pay you money, well, you send me a transaction. I go, well, I'm not going to spend that one because it gives me less money than the original, right? And this this is where the Lightning Network starts to come into its own, right? So they developed a technique to have effectively revocable transactions, which is what you need for this scenario, right? You need to be able to go. You can't use that old one. You've got to use the latest one once we agree on it. And that really was the breakthrough for me in the paper. And now the way you do this is a little bit tricky, but you basically have this transaction that says, you know, pay this to me and pay this to you, as we did before, except that we both have one of these. You know, mine says, you know, pay me 10 bucks, pay you 40 bucks. Yours says, you know, pay you 40 bucks, pay me 10 bucks. So they're symmetrical. The only difference is mine says, sure, pay me 10 bucks, but wait a couple of days before I can actually spend that. Yours is similar. Yours says, yeah, sure, it pays you 40 bucks, but you've got to wait a couple of days. Now, 
That delay is really important because what we also do when we create a new version of the transaction, say, you know, the balance is different. It's 39 and 11 bucks rather than 40 and 10 or whatever. We hand each other in the original paper, the private keys for the old transaction. So what that means is at that point, if I spend the old transaction that pays you 40 bucks, it pays me 10 bucks. I got to wait now using a time lock transaction. I've got to wait for you know, a day before I can spend it. Well, you've got my key, so you can instantly create a transaction that takes my money away. So if I try to cheat and use an old revoked transaction, you've got all the pieces you need to spend it instantly. I've got to wait. Right? So that's the fundamental mechanism by which you create these revocable transactions. And there's a couple of different ways of actually doing that. And we use a different one in the deployable lightning paper that's slightly simpler and is closer to something we can do in Bitcoin today. And it is quite clever because the only way to actually revoke a Bitcoin transaction is to double spend its input and therefore making the transaction that you're holding unusable because its input has already been spent. That's right. So this really does add something new to Bitcoin, right? This is something that we really didn't have the concept of before. As you say, you could double spend out, but you couldn't really take something that existed and effectively revoke it later and say, okay, that's no longer useful. And this technique allows you to do that. So in this case, let's just go kind of step by step. You and me, we create a multi-sig and I fund it. You know, instead of a refund transaction with a 30-day time lock where I get all my money back, what we do instead is we each create a transaction, uh, one where I get all the money and one where you get all the money. No, because you put all the, if you put all the money in, then obviously both transactions, mine and yours, would both say you get all the money. You'd send me the signature that I need, and I'd send me the signature you, you need, right? So at this stage, either one of us could just unilaterally close the channel by dropping you know, that multi-sig transaction called a commit transaction on the network. Now, if I drop mine, I have to wait for my money. If you drop yours, you have to wait for your money. In this case, there's no my money because it's all yours. So Okay, so the, the refund is still there as kind of a fail-safe. Yeah, but these new revocable transactions happen as I'm buying coffee from you. And then maybe the next day, I don't know, uh, you buy sugar from me or some some kind of like back and forth. So the, the actual value goes up and down. Yep. So we cancel the old ones. Or, well, we arrange the new ones, right? And then we revoke the old ones by handing over our keys in the classic one. In the modified one, we basically just hand over a, a pre-image for a hash. By the way, I had you some secret so that now you go, okay, cool. If you try to use the old ones, I can steal all the money. So I'm happy. So the output of that commitment transaction is quite complicated, right? Is there an or operator in that script sig? Yeah. So well, let's do the deployable lightning case, uh, the sort of kind of simplified one. And it says, if you've got the secret, you can spend it immediately, right? If you have that secret of my transaction, you can send it immediately because you shouldn't have that unless we've revoked the transaction, in which case I've handed it over. So in that case, you can take, you can steal my money. So there's the steal case. Or otherwise it says, I can use it and use my key to get it after some period of time. So, you know, we talk about a day, for example, it's locked up, which means that if I spend it, I use that or case in the output to say, I'm going to try to spend it now, but I've got to wait. You've got a day to use your revocation key that I've handed you to steal the funds out from under me. So yeah, it is a slightly complicated output script. It's not insane. The hash secret or the private key exchange, for example, like it works because in the transaction, there's a hash. And whoever has the data that hashes to that hash can publish that to the blockchain. It'll evaluate to true and you can claim that output. Okay. Um, but we're still talking about a transaction with one output, right? And that output says, you know, it has a value and then it says either you sign this after 20 days or you produce the pre-image of this hash. 
Yep. It says me in delay or you in secret. And the other output, which is yours, it just like normal, you know, you can just take it. It's like the balance of whatever I haven't spent yet or something. So I can always just reclaim that. That's right. Your money goes straight to you. My money is delayed or the revocation secret and vice versa on the other side. You have the mirror image, which says I can just take my money or you can take it after a delay or I can take it if I have a secret, right? So there's two outputs to each side. Okay. And the delay, now I know and lock time can apply to an entire output, but I didn't know that, for example, a lock time could occur in the middle of a script. Yeah. So um, this is where the bips come in. So we require a few extensions to Bitcoin, or all of which are soft forks that are already in, in progress, uh, or not, sorry, not in progress, they're already under discussion as various BIPs. This, in fact, requires a relative check sequence verify. So there's a BIP out there that specifies that you can use the sequence number, uh, which is basically unused at the moment, in the input to say, well, it's, 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 it's a little bit complicated, it's in two stages. The, the sequence number in the input can say, I can only be spent this long after the thing that I'm spending, right? Either in blocks or in time. And then you have a new operator that validates that the thing spending me has indeed been locked so it can only be spent after that time. So effectively, you can say in a script, you can only spend this output after two days or whatever. Now that does require a soft fork. It does require a new operator, but that's fairly uncontroversial and you know has already been proposed. So it's nothing completely radical. But yes, it is something that we assume in the lightning design. You can work around it, uh, using a more complicated structure, but given the timing of where their Lightning Network is, I think it's reasonable to assume that this will be in Bitcoin, you know, in the sort of in the medium future anyway. That's cool. And as this discussion goes on, I think we're going to encounter a few of these sort of soft fork upgrades that are required to really make the Lightning Network robust and functional. We're currently counting three. Okay. So then the OR statement. Now, this is something I also, I've seen it in the core code but I wasn't sure if OR fails the is standard test or right now, can I publish a transaction with an OR in the script sig? Interestingly, you can, yes, because the PetaScript hash, we dropped the is standard test a while ago. So as long as you're doing a PetaScript hash and saying, hey, you know, your script must hash to this, then there's no is standard test anymore on the script that matches the PetaScript hash. So we've kind of unleashed the is standard test from anything that's PetaScript hash. Okay, so with the lock time aside, I could right now publish a transaction that says either you sign this output with your private key or you produce a pre-image to this hash. That much is already standard, valid, mineable. Straightforward and tested. So the scripts that are in the deployable lightning paper, for example, are actually cut and paste from the actual code that has been used and tested in those scenarios. So yeah, that's that's pretty straightforward. And that was actually kind of cool to discover because I was wondering if we were going to have an is standard battle over these really weird scripts. Turns out not a problem with Petascript hash. So it seems like something that that is a little bit of a concern about this is so you and I are, are doing this back and forth and you have a transaction that I don't ever want you to use. So what happens first, actually? Do you send me the secret which revokes your transaction before I send the new commitment transaction, which would change the balance? No, that would be really, really, really dumb. Okay, I got it backwards then. Um, if I'd sent you that secret first, if I sent you that secret first, I'd be like, oh, well, crap. Now I can't use any of them, like, because I've revoked all of them. Please, Matthew, can I have my money back? Hello, wh where have you gone? You know, th that's probably not a good scenario. So we agree on the new one. We exchange signatures on the new one, and then we revoke the old one, strictly in that order. And that works fine. Okay, so let's see. So you actually hand me the cup of coffee, I hand you the new transaction, and then you give me the secret for the old transaction, something like that? Yeah, exactly. You know, and the, the protocol is fairly straightforward, you know, because we both need signatures to exchange. I go, how about this? You go, yes, and here's the signature 
for, for that new one. And I send back going, cool, here's the signature and the revocation for the old one. And then finally you send me, okay, here's the revocation for the original one. At that point, we're done. The old one's revoked. The new one is good. Right. And now when we say revoked, it's still basically a concept because the transaction is still valid. You can still commit it to the blockchain. The thing that makes it revocable is that I can steal all the money from it if you do that. Exactly. That's right. And vice versa, you know, because this is symmetrical. You've got one as well, an old one that you could spend. You're better off. You're best off securely erasing that. In fact, in practice, you would never create that transaction. You'd never actually form it anywhere because it's just too dangerous to have these things lying around. Okay, interesting. What makes this work is that I actually have to watch you or I have to watch the blockchain or watch the status of the channel. And as you know, if you do attempt to spend a revoked transaction, I have to jump on that and take the money before the lock time. That's right. And that's where that lock time variable becomes interesting because, you know, the longer it is, the more time you have to do that. But the longer it is, the more scenarios where I'm going to have to wait that length of time before getting my money, right? Because if you vanish, I have to publish the latest one and I'm going to be then waiting for that lock time. So we talk about a day or so is probably reasonable. Now, there is a really cool concept that's in the paper that unfortunately we can't do today because of Bitcoin limitations. And this idea of outsourcing that watching without having to trust somebody. So you give them basically some transact steal those steel transactions that could steal your old versions and they just watch for you right now it's not completely trustless because they could just lie and not actually watch for your your attempt to cheat but it's trustless in the sense that they would just be able to drop those transactions of mine and steal the money for me if they did see you cheat so we could see services like that pop up unfortunately that requires uh, some new CIOPS, which we don't have in bitcoin and it's a much bigger debate to get those in but it's certainly a concept that's out there Right. And uh, in that instance with the, the outsourcing vendor, I guess, would they need your private key? No, absolutely not. I mean, you could do it with private keys, but that would be dumb because that would be a trusted relationship. We wouldn't want them to be able to steal my money, right? Uh, in this case, you could basically prebate some transactions for them that they could just drop when they see you try to cheat. And that's why we require new SIGOPs because they can't tell what your transaction is going to look like until you've generated it. So I Currently on Bitcoin, you can't create a transaction that depends on a transaction you haven't seen or a transaction that could be that can be changed. And in that case, because you're creating the signature, you can always change it. So we can't quite do that today, but it's certainly there is a concept and something that, that we're going to look for in future. Right. Okay. And since you're talking about changing transactions, let's bring up transaction malleability at this point, too, because... Yeah, anybody who went through Mt. Gox remembers malleability being an issue, and I know there's been some bips to address it, but it's incredibly crucial in this case because you can always change a transaction by signing it again with a new random number, and that will throw off the entire channel. So how is that being addressed? Okay, so let's let's step back a bit. Malleability is an issue, and it's an issue whenever you have two transactions that depend on each other, where one of them is not buried in the blockchain. So any kind of channel setup tends to look like this when it gets complicated, because anyone currently can change any transaction and change the transaction ID. And the problem is that, of course, the transaction that depends on it specifies uh, and commits to a particular transaction ID. So you change the transaction ID, the second transaction no longer works at all. And you can't just change that second one because you'd have to re-sign it. And when you say transaction ID, you're referring to the hash of the transaction, right? So changing any single bit in that transaction will make you a new hash, new transaction ID. Exactly. In fact, in the elements uh, alpha sidechain that um, Blockstream produced, one of the cool things they did is change the transaction ID. So the transaction ID is no longer the hash of the entire thing, and it actually makes this whole problem go away. But 
you know, given that that would be a really uh, hard fork in Bitcoin, we probably won't be doing that anytime soon. How is it uh, addressed on the sidechain? So what they do is they they do the hashing differently, so they don't actually hash the don't hash the inputs. So the result is that you have a if if you change the inputs to a to a particular transaction, you no longer are, are changing the transaction ID. Uh, now this this works out really really nicely because you know if you resign it or anything like that, you haven't changed the transaction ID. Now there is going back to malleability in Bitcoin. There is a BIP, uh, the malleability BIP, that seeks to resolve all the obvious forms of malleability. It does not protect you from signature malleability. If you have to sign something, you can always sign it with a new signature and change the transaction ID. So that form of malleability is something that we're not going to be addressing in Bitcoin. So you have to be quite careful that you never build a dependent change of chain of transactions on somebody else's transaction where they could just resign it and change the transaction ID. So you still have to design around that property and it makes and so malleability can still be an issue, but in the Lightning network we deliberately never build such a chain so we can get away with it. But we do assume that you can't malleate a transaction. And I looked it up that is actually a word it means to beat with a hammer. Okay. I don't know if I'm if I'm entirely clear on that though because if I'm dealing with the cafe let's say can't I resign well uh hmm well I guess everything is still based on the transaction that's in the blockchain already so that one can't be changed that's right that one can't be changed so you're good uh, so as long as you're only one hop away you're fine if it's in the blockchain it's all easy and that's the normal case it's if you start to build these complicated chains of transactions that you have to start worrying about the malleability problem do these chains come up when we start talking about the third party? Yeah, so exactly. So we start we start getting into there. I mean, this has always been known as like a theoretical problem, but Lightning kind of brings it into focus. Okay, cool. Well, before we move on to third party, since we're talking about the malleability, what is the fix to that? There's a new SIG hash or is it another opcode? No, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, you could fix it using a new SIG hash op, and that is the way that it was implied or certainly suggested in the original Lightning paper. They said, hey, We'll basically have some new C-cash modes, which requires basically a new op, like a CheckSig2 kind of op that can say, actually, instead of committing to the normal transaction ID, we'll commit to this normalized transaction ID, which perhaps doesn't include the inputs so that it can't be malleated as easily. But the fix that we're looking for, because that is fairly ambitious, I mean, CheckSig2 could do all kinds of wonderful things. There are some great suggestions on things it could do. The downside of that is that the process of figuring out what it should do is going to take a, a bit longer. Could easily log jam on the number of good ideas out there. People you near know, Schnorr signatures. It could do all kinds of wonderful, wonderful things. So you don't really want to be reliant on that getting through. So we have the uh, malleability bit, which basically just normalizes the way you produce a transaction. You know, if you produce a version three transaction, it will only be accepted by the network if it has the you know. It doesn't have extra zeros. It doesn't. It has a normalized signature. You know, basically trying to reduce all the, the the different ways in which you can express things in a Bitcoin transaction down to one canonical way, and it must be represented that way. And that solves a lot of your malleability problems. Okay, and that I, I believe is BIP sixty two. I looked it up, and it was a Peter Willy BIP. Indeed, it's Peter Willer, and uh, he did BIP sixty two, and that's the one. Okay, and is that uh, integrated into Core now? Is that in the code? No, it's still pending. I mean, there's nothing really wrong with it. We saw BIP66 go through recently, which did a, a subset of what BIP62 suggested. And it turns out in retrospect, that was pushed by the fact that Peter realized there was an issue 
we saw the CVE come out recently for BIP66 explaining why they basically fast-tracked that part of anti-malleability because there was an open SSL issue where we could have forked the network. So, But the whole BIP62 has just been waiting for like a killer use case, right? There are other issues going on at the moment, as you may have noticed in the Bitcoin world. So it's kind of been on the back burner. The existence of Lightning perhaps pushes it a bit closer to the front burner. So I've been talking to Peter about it. There's no real roadblocks on it. Everyone agrees with it. It's just a matter of, you know, doing the work and getting it deployed. Gotcha. And a quick tangent, actually, as long as I've got you here, every time you do a soft fork, when you take a no-op and you give it a new function, are we ever going to run out of no-ops? It's a really interesting question. We will probably end up, it's speculated, and and Peter Todd has suggested this, we would take the last no-op and we would make it basically, you know, it would take the top thing on the stack and take that as the extended instruction to do. So it would basically open that up to be a whole heap of new no-ops, right? Oh, okay. So it would be a no-op that takes basically an argument, and then that could be any infinite number of new functions. Exactly. That's right. So you'd probably end up doing something like that to get your last no-op. We're a fair way away from that, though. So I think we still have 14 no-ops unaccounted for. So it'll be a while before we get to that. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by GetKeepKey.com, an easy, secure, Trezor-compatible hardware wallet coming soon. One of the things that's different about the KeepKey compared to other hardware wallets is that it only has one button, a confirm button that you hold down for a second or two to complete your transactions or other sensitive functions. The thing that's missing here is a cancel button. What happens if the information you're asked to verify when viewed on your KeepKey turns out to be incorrect and you only have that one confirm button? You have two options close the Chrome extension wallet simply by clicking away for it, or just unplug your device from the computer. Either way, when you reopen the wallet, you're back to where you started and ready to go. For more information or to have KeepKey notify you when the price is set and the product is ready to ship, visit getkeepkey.com. Today's magic word is zap. That's Z-A-P, zap. You've got until the 5th of September to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener awards. Let's rejoin the conversation now. So we've got a one-way payment channel. We've got a two-way payment channel with revocable transactions. And we've got some malleability fixes, which takes us to the big one, the third-party Lightning Network transaction when Alice pays Charlie through Bob or and, and like that. So I can send an off-blockchain transaction to somebody I've never met by basically finding a common hub and let's talk about how we get there from, from the building blocks we've already discussed. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So we've had this idea of like atomic swaps for a while using the same idea we've already discussed where you have a, a secret, you give someone the hash, and it's easy to write a script that says, if you've got the thing that hashes to this, uh, you can take the money, right? So 
this technique's been used for atomic swaps and all these kind of cool suggestions. Here we're using it to say, okay, so let's use an example where Alice is going through Bob to pay Carol, right? Classic example. Alice goes to Bob, okay, I'll give you, you know, 10 bucks if you give me the value that hashes to XYZ, you know, this, this, this big blob of data. And uh, then, you know, Bob turns around to Carol and says, okay, I'll give you nine bucks 99 if you give me the, the value that hashes to this big blob of data. And Carol goes, sweet, uh, hands it across to, to Bob, not a problem, gets, takes the money because this, of course, is in the Bitcoin scripting system. So basically, in order to collect that output, Carol has to reveal the hash value. Knowing that, Bob, of course, can turn around and redeem the output that Alice gave him using that same value So, and taking a one-cent profit. Right. So in a nutshell, that's how it works. And it, you know, it's fairly straightforward. And that, of course, extends outwards to any number of hops. The good thing about this is that you know that you can take someone's offer for, for this output. And if, if you don't ever find out the secret, well, you know, you can just never collect. That's fine. And you only ever offer slightly less than that for anyone else to give you the secret. And so you can route this through. Yeah, okay. And, and, and the reason that you know that Bob knows that Alice will give him the money is because they each have a relationship with these revocable transactions. So once Bob gives the money to Carol, he knows he can collect from Alice because they have a revocability channel set up between Alice and Bob. You can throw away all the channels and you can just do this on blockchain today. So you can think about it as just a, you know, it's a very generic mechanism by which, you know, you can create a transaction that says, you know, it will pay me one Bitcoin if I know the answer to, you know, what hashes to this value. Right, that, that's easy to do in script, very, very straightforward. We can do that on the blockchain today. Of course, there's no reason if it's on the blockchain for you to do it via me, but the theory is there. Now, similarly, I could create a transaction that offers you know, 0.99 Bitcoin to anyone who solves this. Uh, this is basically the same question, what hashes to this, right? And I know that if, by definition, if they manage to pick that up, they've revealed the value, what we call the R value, and then I can collect the money from you. So we can create a network like that. Now, obviously, once you put the tickets off the blockchain, we're talking inside channels. Alice has a channel to Bob and can put this transaction in the channel and say, yep, if you give me this value within two days, and that's, again, easy to script. You just have a script that, that basically says, I can take the money back in two days, or you can take it back before then if you've got this R value uh, that hashes to this value, right? Again, another one of those script outputs that has an or condition in it, but it's still fairly straightforward. Once Alice and Bob have that in the channel, Bob can turn around and put a similar transaction in the channel to Carol, presumably offering slightly less Bitcoins, but the same idea so that Carol will reveal the R value. The timeout for that might be one day instead of two days to make sure that Bob is going to get that R value from Carol in time to collect from Alice. Right, because if time runs out, Alice can take her refund. That's right, exactly. So you've got to make sure that there's a bit of a difference there. So some of these, I can see these channels, especially when you get four or five hops going and multiple parties involved, they're just kind of like big houses of cards. And as soon as one person misbehaves, then the entire thing collapses and transactions end up in the blockchain and it's all closed. 
Yeah, so everyone starts dumping the blockchain when there's any trouble. In fact, uh, in my state prototype, basically, anyone violates the protocol, you just you, you drop to blockchain. That's always the, the sort of method of last resort. We're kind of building these castles in the sky, and as long as everything works well, it's great. But they're always set up in such a way that we can just drop everything on to the Bitcoin blockchain and have it resolved that way, potentially with a timeout that, you know, maybe a few days. But if you've ever had your credit card frozen for some reason, you'll realize that's a lot better than the current state of play. But say I'm in a foreign country and I want to use one of these Lightning Network off blockchain transactions with a vendor there and assume that we know we have something in common. Like, let's say it's, you know, Bitcoin Visa that is like a hub and they've got channels open with everybody. So when I go to buy food at, you know, the street vendor stall, then what information do I exchange with him? Do we does he give me the R value right then? Do we have to agree on a route through the network before you know the transaction is completed? What's that interaction like? These are all the really fun questions, right? And we're talking about software that doesn't quite exist yet. So we're into the realm of speculation at this point, right? So that's important to bear in mind here. Now, the boring case is where there's one big hub that everybody can connect to, right? You don't really need a network then. You just need a hub. And I really hate the idea of having a centralized hub that one, I hate the idea of having a centralized hub. But two, I hate the idea of one place that knows all my financial transactions. So let's step back a bit. I have uh, an app on my phone, say, that connect has connected You know, when I installed it uh, and established channels with five random nodes on the network. Now all we have is a routing problem because their end needs to say, you know, and my end, I need to figure out a way to get a payment through to wherever they are. Now, there are some interesting ways to do that as the network grows, but it's certainly a tractable problem that if all else fails, you deal with by having you know, some special nodes that are hubs. But we would, I'd like it to be as flat as possible so anyone can figure out how to connect to anyone else. And we've been throwing around on the mailing list different ways of doing that at scale when we're talking about millions of nodes on the network. But assuming that we can, you know, I can figure out a route to them, you know, maybe they give me some, you know, hey, here's how you get from these example places to me. And therefore, if I can get to any of those, I can figure out a route. They also give me the hash value of this R secret that they've generated. And I go, okay, I figured out the route. It's 15 hops or whatever. I mean, that's a little extreme, but, you know, maybe it's, it's five hops that I figured out the short, shortest, cheapest route because different people may charge different amounts of fees. And I say, okay, so it's going to, the fee is going to be this much. They want 10 bucks. It's going to cost me 10 bucks and, and you know, 1.03 cents or whatever the amount is. And I start offering the first hop and I say, hey, I'll give you, you know, 10 bucks and change if you give me the value that hashes to this, that hash of R that they've already given me. Okay, so my first approximation on how this would look is it would look very much like a normal kind of Bitcoin transaction. They would There would be a payment channel between me and them somehow. Uh, instead of saying, hey, just pay to this Bitcoin address, they'd say, hey, you can pay me via Lightning as well. And then I'll just have to figure out the route to get to that Lightning address that they've given me. In fact, there's one idea which I really like, that is Bitcoin addresses will always be Lightning addresses. So you know, if I can't figure out how to get you on Lightning, I just drop it on the Bitcoin network like normal. Right. I think that's really important because one, lightning really is a caching layer for Bitcoin. It's not a different thing. And secondly, that's the kind of failure mode that you always fall back to anyway. If the lightning network can't route or there's a protocol problem or, you know, one of these nodes goes down or whatever, you always end up on the Bitcoin network. So your app is going to need to have some understanding of Bitcoin and all those things. So you might as well just go, hey, if you can't route to them, just drop it on the Bitcoin network. All else fails. Yeah, we have the normal confirmation delay and everything else, but it's not the end of the world. Right. We're not trying to make Bitcoin and the mining network obsolete by doing everything off chain. Like there's still obviously tons of activity on the blockchain. 
this is this is actually one of the key points that I really wanted to make here. There's there's been some speculation saying, hey, the block size debate, right? If everything's on Lightning, then you know, hey, we don't need, you know, we could, we could get away with tiny blocks. I think that is absolutely wrong, and it's wrong because. If the Lightning Network really takes off and everyone goes, hey, cool, I think the killer app for it is going to be sending really, really tight transactions and lots of them. And if that is something we've never really been able to do before, I mean, send you know, 0.01 cents around the world really hasn't been feasible. If that becomes something you can do on the Lightning Network, then I think it's going to draw a whole heap of people into Bitcoin. Well, all those people are going to need Bitcoins and they're all going to need to set up channels on the Bitcoin network and all that stuff. So it will make things worse and not better from the point of view of capacity planning for the Bitcoin network. So this idea that, hey, you know, Lightning will take pressure off the Bitcoin network may be very, very long-term true, but in the short to medium term, it actually makes things worse. And we're going to see a lot of activity. If Lightning becomes a killer app, we're going to see a lot more activity on the Bitcoin blockchain. Sure. That's actually an interesting point. If Lightning does dominate global payments, would there ever be a situation where me as a consumer doesn't actually have a blockchain output, like an actual coin that all I have is this, you know, a pile of IOUs in my wallet. Is that even is that even a case here? Well, they're they're not IOUs, right? They're real transactions. They're just not published yet, right? This is different from an IOU kind of Ripple style system where you have to trust someone. You've got the money sitting there. You just haven't you haven't put it to the Bitcoin blockchain, but you can at any moment. It really is yours. It's not in some way less than having a real. A real Bitcoin. You have the private keys. You have the money. It's it's all there. It's just you haven't dropped it on the blockchain yet. To, to answer your question, could you end up doing everything through the Lightning Network and the Bitcoin Network only being there? Like, hey, wow, something really weird's going on today on the Lightning Network. It actually routed one of my transactions through the Bitcoin Network raw. Yeah, maybe that will that will become the case, you know, in the far future. But from an application point of view and the programming point of view. It absolutely needs to understand and watch the Bitcoin network. So, you know, it really is a Bitcoin app. And then back to the question of using the Lightning Network for transactions. So if we were met up in a strange place and you would give me your Lightning Network address, that would maybe be a Bitcoin address, but it would also include the IDs of a few nodes or something. So when I scan your QR code, it would have like a, an address or like a, a long route or something, some ways I could find you out there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other way, we could use a DHT, we could use any kind of thing, because it doesn't need to be 100% reliable. It just needs to be verifiable. If you do think you've discovered a route, you want to know that it's going to work. So the speculation at the moment is we'd probably use some kind of DHT kind of system where you'd have this distributed hash table, and you could go, hey, does anyone know a route to this guy? It would go through the hash table. And, you know, yeah, maybe you'd give me some help, some hints and go, hey, actually, you know, here, here's three points that might be worth asking, or here's where to get to me from these three points. And so I can find any of those, I'm good. So there's, there, there's that question as well. You, know, you don't just want a route, you'd like you know, a short route that's cheap and everything else. So um, there, there are definitely a few variables we played off. And that kind of network design is something I think we're going to be wrestling with as we scale. You know, we've got some ideas on how it worked, but you know, when the metal hits the road, it's going to be really interesting to see how, how it works. You know, ask me again after we've got a few million nodes. <laughs> yeah, okay. And then, so all these Lightning Network transactions, payment channels, they all revolve around lock time is being sort of a fail safe, which means that they're all going to end eventually because eventually you're going to run out of lock times. Interestingly not because we have relative lock times. So assuming that we get the relative lock time bit where basically you can say, firstly, that an individual output, we reuse the end sequence field in, in an input to say, I can only be spent this relative length of time after the output that I'm spending. So that's the first ingredient. So 
it's an odd way to do it, but it happens we've got this redundant field in the Bitcoin input. So if we use that and start soft fork so that we enforce that and there's a bit for that, we can then add an operator say, hey, make sure that the input has used that field and that that field is greater than this value. So it is enforcing more than two weeks or whatever thing you want. So if you go for relative lock times, you never end up in this situation where, hey, it's a year's up. We need to refresh our channel. You can actually just keep running them forever. But doesn't every channel start with an anchor transaction, which is mined into a block? So you're saying that that output doesn't have... That output does not need, exactly. Because unlike the single direction channel, which required you know you to have this output that would time it out, the refund output that's basically setting a deadline uh, on how long this channel can last, we use the, the original commitment transactions that we negotiate beforehand before publishing the anchor transaction. We set that up so that we can get our money back first. Now, we've since we've used the channel, we've revoked that long ago, but it did exist in the beginning. Okay, I see. So you can use relative lock time to extend the life of a payment channel. Exactly. So, so our payment channels do not expire for some arbitrary lock time. Now, if we didn't get relative lock time and we had to use the absolute ones, then yeah, we, we would have to play games with that and we would end up with having to recycle channels. Okay. And then since we are talking about full blocks, what happens in the situation where I'm trying to get a commitment transaction into the blockchain before you know a refund becomes valid, but the blocks are too full or I don't have the fees or something and I just can't get my commitment into the blockchain and then all of a sudden the refund's valid and I haven't got my commitment in, you could broadcast the refund transaction before the commitment. Yeah, this, this, is, this is an interesting attack that's, that's, that's lined up in the original paper where they say, hey, you know, particularly if you had, say, a massive DOS or, or something's discovered and a whole heap of nodes go down at once and they all flood the blockchain with their transactions. And that's a more interesting case because, for example, in a default client, we use 10 times the normal fee on commitment transactions. Because in the normal case, you'll never broadcast these transactions, right? You'll settle up at the end of the day. You create a special close transaction between the two of you if you do want to close the channel. And the network will never see these commitment transactions with have the time delay and all that stuff. That'll never hit the network. So when we create those and sign them for each other, we put a massive fee on them for exactly this reason. We want those to go fast through fast. But the case where we get multiple node collapse, we could still see a huge flood of these go through the network. So we could still start worrying about full blocks at that time. So despite that mitigation, it's possible that we could have full blocks. Now, you could just say, hey, extend the timeout till it's a ridiculous length of time. But that also means now that you know, if you do a unilateral close, you have to wait for that timeout to expire. You know, say extend it to 30 days. And we're not going to have full blocks for 30 days with 10 times normal transaction fees. So therefore, I'm pretty happy with that. But 30 days is a long time to wait for your money if you have to publish one of those. So there's been an interesting suggestion from Gregory Maxwell called Time Stop, where if blocks fill up, then we simply would stop the clock for a relative and in fact, absolute timeouts. So that, and this would be a soft fork change to say, hey, you know, if blocks are full, we're not going to start expiring everything. So there, there's just definitely an interesting proposal on how to address that. But it's the kind of thing that would probably only become something we would, we would seriously consider if this started to be a problem. It's certainly not going to become a problem with the, you know, in the early days. It would have to be, you know, Lightning Network would have to be massive before we'd even really consider this as something that could happen. I see. So the idea is there is that the lock time would be like, okay, this transaction is only valid in 10 blocks, but if there's a full block, it's now valid in 11 blocks. Or if there's another full block, now it's 12 blocks. Exactly. And that has some other nasty effects that you can end up waiting longer in the case of full blocks. But assuming that, you know, 
full blocks are an emergency kind of this shouldn't be happening condition, then that's certainly the lesser evil. Okay, cool. So a few more questions about the hubs. Now, is there any way that, so let's talk, let's say I want to run a hub. I'm just a guy. I run a, I actually do run a Bitcoin node. What if I want to run a lightning hub or what if, could there possibly be a decentralized hub the way we have decentralized P2 pool, decentralized mining? Can you make a hub that has a multi-sig where five people run the hub and maybe users would find that less, um, you know, less trust, less centralization required? Okay, so yeah, generally stop talking about hubs. That was the, word, the terminology I used originally because it really implies a centralization. I started just talking about nodes. Everyone's a node, right? In fact, your 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 cell phone could be a node, right? But you know, so say you want to run a node, and I think a lot of people should because obviously the more people that run the run nodes, the more decentralized the network is. There are a couple of things. One is that you would potentially earn fees. You'd be charging everyone who who puts you know a Bitcoin through you, but they don't really have a trust issue with you, other than the fact that you have some exposure to what payments are going on in the network. So there's a potential to do data collection and you're dealing with people's financials here. So that's something that you generally would, would want people not to do. So you would want a lot of honest people to run hubs. But the, the issue with this one is, is, is that you would have a hot wallet on your, your Lightning node. So there's potentially a security issue there, right? Because you need to be able to sign transactions and everything else. That implies that you know, you've got a hot wallet for whatever the total value of channels that you're dealing with is. From your point of view, you're thinking, okay, so so what's it? You know, maybe I'll run a really small one. That'll be fine. Now, the potential to do like a multi-sig is certainly possible. It doesn't gain you anything, however. The real risk is not that the hub will run away with your money because it can't. The risk is that the damn thing will go down and you'll be stuck waiting for you know days for to get that payment back. And the other one is that they will they'll do analysis and try to violate your uh, financial privacy. And it doesn't help that they're multi-sig. That makes no difference at all. Or there could be censorship. Uh, they could censor, but then you can rat around it. That's not really a problem. You should run more hubs. If there are five of you, you should run five, probably run five completely independent nodes, and then the network will be much healthier. Now, one of the things that, that we're doing, uh, even in the original version, uh, is to look at basically onion routing, where, where each hop only knows the next hop and obviously where it came from but can't see the whole message. You can see the sides either side of you, which you kind of have to do, but you can't see where it's going and you can't see where it originally came from. And I think that's really important because you know financial privacy is, is really, really important for people, even if you're talking about small payments, in fact, perhaps even more for small payments. And also, we don't know what the network's going to be used for. I think if you could identify every payment going across the network, that would be incredibly compromising and certainly not something that is something that we should be building on top of Bitcoin, which is supposed to be, you know, this, this pseudonymous and, and fairly anonymous uh, network. Uh, and certainly I wouldn't be able to stand in the same room as people like, you know, Adam Back and, and Greg Maxwell, who are, you know, obviously the old cypherpunk kind of people who are incredibly privacy sensitive and not have some kind of answer for, for how we were going to protect people's, you know, financial privacy. Now that said, if somebody sees two points in the route, they can easily correlate the payments because they'll have that same R-value hash, right? So it's not completely anonymous the same way like a Tor connection would be, but we can certainly protect as much as we can people from doing analysis on, on what's going through the network. Or at least make it as good as what Bitcoin blockchain already offers. That's right. Exactly. That, that is certainly the minimum bar for me is that it's got to be at least as good as that and better if possible. So in a Lightning Network transaction, there's so many messages going around. There's the R values and the hashes and, and the transactions, and we need to agree on multi-sig everywhere and stuff. So many messages. Are these messages going, are they being relayed across the Bitcoin network? Or is it, you know, what's the messaging protocol? 
it's going to certainly have to be a, a separate network. So at the moment, there's uh, we're using protobufs for the prototype. And I should talk about that, actually, because there's three people implementing Lightning Network. I'm just one of them. And there are another couple of people who come out that would work with different parts of an incomplete implementation. And the idea is we converge on at least a common protocol. So these all talk to each other. There's the Java one, there's the Python one, and there's the C one, which is mine. The current scheme is to use protobufs. Um, we will have, have a separate peer-to-peer network. It doesn't really make a huge amount of sense to run across the Bitcoin network. There's a whole level of design there for a peer-to-peer network, but it does make sense to have a separate lightning peer-to-peer. Right. And then, I mean, these messages could be encrypted or or would they be in the clear? Is there a man in the middle attack vector? Must be encrypted. Must be encrypted. If you're trying to route to a specific node, obviously you might as well use that fact that you've got that public key, which is their node ID, and uh, encrypt, the, encrypt the transport to them. So, you know, crypto is vital in this case. There's no point pretending to have financial privacy if you don't bother, you know, if you send everything in the clear. So at this point, my questions are are sort of speculative and fantastical, like, you know, uh, when we reach 2000 transactions per second, how big does the blocks need to be? And how expensive is it to run a lightning network node and and stuff like that? What do you see that what do you see Bitcoin looking like with lightning network in? I mean, I don't know, two years, five years. What do you how do you see it looking? It's it's hard to make predictions, particularly about the future. Right. So I'm concentrating on on the tech because I think it's, it's fascinating and I think this thing needs to exist and it needs to be done right. So so if we, if we project forward in the future and Lightning becomes a thing, I think you get wallet integration is, is going to be key, of course. Somebody can show you, show you a QR code and your wallet goes, yeah, cool. I'll send that through the Lightning network and it all just works. I think we've got a pretty good vision on how that will happen. I think we will see attacks on the Lightning Network, and we'll be going back and forth with issues on that that you're always going to have with a peer-to-peer network. We certainly see on the Bitcoin Network, and you know, and the Bitcoin Network has been through that a few times. And there are some quite you know sophisticated things now in Bitcoin Core to try to handle you know the DOS attacks and stuff like that. We're going to see the same kind of thing on the Lightning Network from a user point of view. For me, it does get back to that original, you know, when you first heard of Bitcoin and they said, hey, you know, you can do this stuff and it's instant and it's, you know, and it's, you know, and the, the fees are trivial. You know, it does get kind of get back to that Bitcoin roots kind of feel. So if this thing works and it and, and all the other ducks line up in a row, we end up with this fantastic story, I think, for Bitcoin. That is, you know, hey, you really can send five cents to someone halfway around the world for so little that you don't even need to have to think about how little you're spending. So in your opinion, even if you have to send through five or six nodes and each one is taking a tiny little, a few Satoshis as a fee, you still think all those fees together will still be less than a regular Bitcoin transaction? I think they will because there's a fair bit of competition between nodes. And really all they're doing is effectively tying up that money for a tiny period of time, except in the off case where something goes horribly wrong and they lose it for days. But in the normal case, they're tying up that cash for a few seconds. And that's not very expensive. Even You know, you calculate out 20% per year interest and I want to earn some money and whatever else. It still works out to a very, very small, small amount of money. And it's unlike the Bitcoin network where the costs involved are the size of transactions, the UTXO set, stuff like that. The cost really on that case is proportional to the amount you're sending, which is why it makes sense for Lightning to handle microtransactions, because other than your fixed overheads, it actually matters how much money you're sending through. With these contracts, there's a certain amount of like locked up money. Are users who are just using Bitcoin for the first time, 
Are you going to tell them like you need to buy a whole Bitcoin and then lock it up in the Lightning Network so you can use the Lightning Network and then you can't, you know, spend it on the Bitcoin blockchain because it's sort of like it's, it's a bond. It's kind of locked up in the network. Yeah. So you've, there's a kind of a transition problem here, right? Well, if, if everyone's on the Lightning Network, it's easy. You don't care that all your money, quote unquote, all your 10 bucks in Bitcoin that you have is, is on the Lightning Network because so is everyone else. So you can always use it to send to them. That's that's easy, right? It's that transition case where you go, oh, crap, how much is in my non-lightning wallet versus how much is in my lightning wallet. Oh crap, you want a normal Bitcoin transaction and I don't actually have enough in my, you know, that kind of problem. It's going to be a really interesting transitional issue. There are actually a few interesting ways that you can cross over between the two networks without involving, you know, you could effectively pay someone on the Bitcoin, through the Bitcoin network, through the lightning network. There'd be like an exit node of, or, of sorts. Effectively, yeah. You'd, you'd route to someone and they would actually basically drop it onto the Bitcoin network. In that case, you'd be paying the fees for their Bitcoin transaction. But it's certainly possible to do that. You know, we, we could, we, I would imagine that we will see hybrid services kind of come around like that because in many ways, it's more convenient to have your money in the Lightning Network because you can send it anywhere really, you know, kind of instantly. But, you know, obviously, or at least some amount of your money. And so, yeah, the software to handle, you know, papering over those differences so that you don't see anything, is going to be a really interesting experience. Uh, we're, we're going to be exploring a lot more on, on ways that we can do that. Somebody pointed out you can actually send Lightning transfers to non-Bitcoin networks as well. That's getting a little bit mind-bending for me, but in theory, it's true. You can do an atomic swap to, instead of just to the next half on the Lightning network, you can do an atomic swap to anything. Basically, as long as you get the thing that, that our value that hashes to this hash that you've got you don't care if somebody's you know got a you know trade sheep in in you know in siberia in order to get that value as long as it gets to you the lightning network works so there could be anything at the other end which opens a huge world of possibilities so that's one of the things that's exciting to me i think we'll see a lot of people do things and i will turn around and go wow i did not expect that to happen so the you know the obvious question now is when do we get it how far along are you and is anybody besides Blockstream, like Drea and Poon, are they still working on an implementation of their own? Or is it all kind of like you and Blockstream making the Lightning Network right now? Drea and Poon have, uh, are, are still you know, talking on the list and we, we get some cool, particularly for Joseph Poon. You know, uh, and I've met with Joseph and we've had a number of good discussions. The Lightning Dev list is where sort of people are hanging out and discussing all these things. And he's, he's, he's reasonably active there and it's been great. We also convinced him to get on Reddit. So he's been uh, reasonably active there as well. As far as the coding goes, we I opened a list and basically started a GitHub repo and just started churning out some some simple simple demo programs to show each of the different transaction states and, and what they'd look like and and trying to make sure that we could produce something that we could deploy on the Bitcoin network without you know massive changes to Bitcoin. And I've since been working on basically the basic protocol state machine. So you've got a state machine that says this is how the protocol will behave, and that eventually will lead to an actual daemon implementation that you can run that you know works on testnet and allows you know a simple transaction between between two nodes and from there we go out to to full routing and all those fun issues there now since since we launched that it's all being completely in the open so you're seeing all my mistakes on github and all that stuff there have been a couple of other projects that have popped up that have announced on the, the mailing list saying hey i've got an implementation and they've got different parts of the implementation one of them has some, some primitive routing support but you know, doesn't have full htlcs but they're, they're furiously working on that as well. So there's some independent parties working on it, which is fantastic. As long as we all interoperate at the end of the day, it's you know, my favorite thing is to have criticism from people who've actually written the code themselves and can, can really get into the nitty gritty of, of you know, 
the exact details. So, so we are starting to build a community of people developing different Lightning implementations. I think that's incredibly exciting. And that's certainly, I mean, I've been working on open source, you know, for 18 years full time now. So just the default mode for me is always, you know, do it out in the open and, and get as many people to contribute as possible. So that's kind of the state of play. I can't give you a prediction on, you know, when it will be ready, but obviously we're waiting on you know, a couple of three Bitcoin soft forks to go through as well. So we're not talking it's going to be here tomorrow. And so assuming that they go through, you know, within the next year at that point, I mean, you can play around today on testnet and just ignore those problems, right? Use no ops instead of your uh, real ops and, and hand wave over it a little bit. That's the kind of timeline that you're looking at. And of course, even once you've got everything ready, you go, hey, here's 1.0 and we've got our protocol and it's all good and we've solved all these routing problems and it's all wonderful. To really use it, you know, you need the wallet integration and all those things. And, you know, wallet vendors have a lot on their plate to implement. So this this is a, a longer journey. This is not, you know, hey, it's going to be expect an announce next month kind of thing. And now I sort of want to finish the discussion by bringing this back to the block size debate, which is just so heated. It's like it's like shaking a jar of bees. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some consensus happening now. There's there's XT solution, BIP 100, BIP 101. Miners are starting to vote in the blockchain on on sort of which angle they support. It sounds like Lightning Network is sort of too far away to really bring relief to the block size debate soon, right? Yeah, and this is this is this is a, annoyed me on both sides. I mean, don't drag Lightning into the block size debate. One because it is a jar of bees, as you described so aptly. I'm actually going to use that from now on to describe the debate. So thank you for that. But also, because as I said, in the short term, it'll make things worse, not better. If Lightning Network became huge and everyone, you know, even if it were ready tomorrow and it became huge, it would make the block size problem much, much worse because everyone would be trying to use the Lightning Network and jumping on there. So, you know, don't look for Lightning Network for a short term solution. If we're talking 20 years, then yeah. But at that point, we can also discuss, you know, the prevalence of flying cars and alien invasion and whatever else is going to happen in that time that we can't predict that will also have an effect. So yeah, I, I really see the two things as decoupled. And that's why I have never given an opinion on the block size issue myself. And just kind of following up on that, here's another fantasy question. If the Lightning Network was developed, you know, by Satoshi Nakamoto in 2009, would we be having the block size debate right now? Wow. Okay. That's a really good question. You look back and we've always had this idea, there's, there's been this concept that if we hit the limits of, of Bitcoin scalability, it'll become a settlement network for something else on top. What we didn't realize until the Lightning Paper came along is how close we were to already having all the capabilities we needed to build this settlement network. It was sort of originally assumed it maybe it'd be a trust network that we see these kind of, you know, Bitcoin banks or something, and, and they'd use it for that, that would go that angle. And really, it, it says something about the power of the Bitcoin scripting language and Satoshi's insistence that it be there from day one, that it was really, really close to enabling this thing that nobody at that point predicted. So I think we would still be having this debate because it's, I think it's an important debate to have. Maybe it would be delayed a few years because of Lightning. Or maybe, hey, Lightning would have been so incredibly popular that we would have had the debate three years ago because we would have been hitting capacity limits at that point. So I don't know which way it would go. Interesting. Rusty Russell from Blockstream, thanks so much for your time. Is there anything else you want to add in? No, except to say that if anyone's going to be in Montreal at the Scalability Workshop, I'd be love to see them there. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Rusty. This has been really, really great, really informative interview. And I hope everybody listening really grasped how complicated this is and just how promising the technology is. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show comes to us from Matthew and Rusty. 
This episode was sponsored by GetKeepKey.com. Music on today's show comes to us from Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at Let'sTalkBitcoin.com. Have a good one.